All right, take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Father, thank you for inserting these real-life stories of the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. Thank you for the blessing of going through this book verse by verse. And here we have before us a story that, of a man that, in one sense, is kind of hard to pin down and know exactly what he was thinking. But Lord, it's instructive for us. It's instructive for the church. And I pray that you might teach us through your word. There might be things here that we can do to help us be more discerning as a church. Teach us today. May our hearts be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, long ago, there were a couple of videos that kind of traveled around the internet that intrigued me because they were about famous people and their supposed conversions. Uh, one was the actor Jim Carrey. And the claim was that Carrey had come to Christ, and the, the proof was this seven-minute video of him dedicating a, a kind of a rehab center for gang members in L.A. Now, the first couple minutes were quite, quite impressive as he talked about Christ. And I'd actually heard him speak before in one of his routines about Jesus. And he certainly has a, a fascination with Jesus. No question about that. But as you went on in the clip, you heard him espouse pantheism. Not by name, but certainly in theory, as he said, we're all gods, and everything is God. And he went on and on and on. Now, that, that's certainly a far cry from believing the exclusive claims of the gospel. Another internet sensation was of Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam leader. Farrakhan said this, I quote, I know... I'm not guessing that my Jesus is alive. So I say to the devil, I now got to pay a price for what I've been teaching all these years. Louis Farrakhan, right? Thousands of people commented how excited they were that he had had this conversion where he came to Christ. Well, upon further inspection, Farrakhan's words when you actually got to the meaning, he wasn't talking about the biblical Jesus. He was talking about his mentor, Elijah Muhammad, who Farrakhan declared was the new Jesus, the new Savior, sent from Allah. And the price that he was paying was not for wrong teaching, but for curse, uh, persecution for what he believes was, was the right teaching of Islam. In fact, Farrakhan's confusing use of language was purposeful to lure Christians into Islam. 
Now, my purpose in this is not to use them as an example and say, well, I know what's in their heart, and I know exactly what they're thinking. We can't really know what anybody's really, you know, what their heart is. That's for God to figure out. But I do think that the Bible and God wants us to be discerning. And I'm certainly not the final determiner, neither are you, of a person's heart or of a person's eternal destination. God will take care of that. But I do think, and I hope that you'd agree with me, that we should not be gullible. Would you agree with me? And many Christians are indeed gullible. That's probably not unique to Christians. Probably everybody, any group, you could say a large group is gullible, but it seems like Christians are certainly not immune to gullibility. Uh, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this. For though by, his, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That same theme is capitalized on in 1 John 4, 6. It says, we're to know truth from error. Now, this doesn't mean that we're, we're to go, go around as, you know, final determiners of whether a person's going to heaven or not. And, but certainly, I think we can agree. Why is it that many Christians seem to be duped by, let's say, the many charlatans on TV? Right? I mean, they mask themselves as, as biblical teachers. And all you got to do is listen for five minutes and think, wow, this is not right. Why do so many Christians fall prey to anybody who just quotes from the Bible and has a warm smile? Oh, they, they got to be from God. That, that guy's speaking truth. I think that many people are desperate, and when they're desperate, they're very vulnerable and can be then very gullible. It's not too unlike Germany before World War II and before Hitler rose to power. Germany was in dire straits economically. They would have taken anybody that could give them an answer to the troubles that they were going through. So even though a horrific answer came in the person of Hitler, that was better than nobody. We'll take somebody. Why? Because they were desperate. And I think many Christians are also vulnerable. Now, the good news is we can recognize our vulnerability and and we can change our, our perspective. That's the good news. The bad news is that part of the deception is that people don't recognize that they have a choice. And so it kind of keeps them trapped. They don't realize they have the freedom to maybe say, hey, that's not right. I mean, let's face it. We live within a Christian culture where basically you're being judgmental just to say that somebody's wrong. We'll, We'll talk about that more in a second. But that's part of the deception, I think. The fact is, the more that we are trained by Scripture, we just read it in Hebrews, the better that we can discern between good and evil, and the more that we humble ourselves before God and are, and are aware of, of what's going on, we're aware of our own vulnerabilities. I mean, listen, now you may not like to hear this, but it's true. 
not everything I've said as nearly 30 years as a pastor is true and right. You certainly understand that, right? Now, I believe the Bible is true and right, but I'm sure over 30 years I've gotten it wrong. I don't want to sit here and recount all the ways, but, you know, I'm sure I have. The, the, the point is, is that even though I may, I may have interpreted a passage wrongly or maybe had a, a wrong slant, been prejudicial about something, just like we all are, that doesn't mean the Bible is an error. It just means I'm an error. So I think we have to be honest about those things that we can all get it wrong, right? So I, I, no, I, I don't want to speak an error, but I'm sure I, sure I have. And I know I have. But why are so many Christians vulnerable? Well, let me throw out just, and this is more from experience, I guess, why I think that's the case, and I, I think that you'll, you'll agree with me when, when I'm done here. I hope you will. First is this, that many Christians are vulnerable because they have drunk the cultural Kool-Aid of avoiding all certainty and truth claims, especially in matters of faith. Now, we, we, we can thank postmodernism a lot for this, but that's not the only vein that this has been deposited into our culture. The situation leaves many Christians, and you see this throughout American Christianity, people who devalue doctrine. They opt for experiential knowledge alone. The Bible is kind of cast aside, and we just need to, you know, Hug one another, sing kumbaya, but don't, don't go railing about the Bible. And it's kind of that, that cultural mood that gets in the church. Now, I'm not here as a you know, doctrinal dictator weighing in on every nuance of theological truth. But it seems a large group of Christians are indeed gullible and easy to deceive. I mean, we live in a society in which anybody who has any certainty especially in matters of faith, is basically equated into some kind of religious terrorist. And our pulpits, as a result, because you know preachers don't want to be associated with that, so our pulpits are often filled with preachers who prefer to tell stories that provide warm feelings of approval instead of making declarative statements from the Word of God. And I think that's a problem. And despite what the naysayers claim, I think it is possible to stand on the truth of the Word of God and still be humble and and, and still love people. But people automatically equate with, you know, making declarative statements of the Bible. That means that, you know, you're an arrogant person and you're not loving and you're judgmental. You know what's all attached to that. To believe the Bible doesn't mean that you're some misogynist pig doesn't mean that you're a you're a know-it-all now there are people that way but that's not the bible's fault that's just people you can find that in any group so while the bible is true sometimes we get it wrong because of our own biases next as many christians are vulnerable because they're fascinated by fame money, and claims of supernatural signs. Now, I'm all for the supernatural. I'm a preacher. I should be, right? But I have a problem with often what is showcased from a stage. 
I mean, all it takes is for a famous Christian to make some kind of claim, to say anything related to God, and the ears of Christians perk up, and Facebook reposts go crazy, and we're off to the races. I mean, where, where the money flows in our American Christianity, people relate that to God's blessing. And the bigger is better mentality seems more of a capitalistic slant on Christianity than true, authentic Christianity. TV preachers who kind of ply their trade, and certainly not all, but some, and I'm not going to sit here and name who I think these are, but they, they, they parade healings on stage, and you don't know a thing about them. You don't know what kind of life they lead. You don't know whether that's authentic or not. Certainly many have proved to not be authentic. We know that. And particularly when a person refuses accountability, won't allow the tough questions to be asked of him or her, that's a problem. I tire of, of leaders marketing the Christian life from a stage with an endless, upbeat, jovial tone, you know, God answering every prayer in the affirmative, people, yay, yay, I mean, constant, I mean, that's great for a season, right? But I tire of them marketing themselves as that, giving a view of Christianity that that's all there is. I mean, do we really think, by the way, that in the book of Acts, the gospel spread because of church marketing, because of, you know, the early church were better programmers, because they, they understood church growth techniques better? That had nothing to do with it. The reason the church grew by leaps and bounds is because of persecution. That's the reason the church grew. Put that in your presentation of American Christianity and see how many people show up. I'm calling for you to follow Christ. And by the way, that's probably going to mean suffering. Why do people not say that? Because people don't want to hear that. That's why. It's missing from many of the portrayals of Christianity. Most people would rather accept a soft lie than a hard truth. And if I can make Christianity huggy, feel good, success-oriented, everything's good, and not let you see the underbelly, admit the mistakes, know that there's suffering, know that it's hard then I'm given a slant that I don't think is truly representative of the Bible. Next, many Christians are vulnerable because they feel like they've tried Christianity and they find it wanting. Uh, this is kind of, you know, when people see how the sausage is made in church, they don't like the sausage. That's the truth of it. Uh, and when they, when they see how you know, Christianity is supposed to have, you know, God answering our prayers. They don't get their prayers answered. Or maybe they've been to some churches and they've been severely burned. And, and let me first just stop right here and say this. I think it's easy for us to sit there and judge people who've been burned and they don't have anything to do with church. And you think, yeah, you know, you tell them to get over it, blah, blah, blah. They need to listen. Okay? I know of people who physically cannot walk into church because they have had such spiritual abuse go on in their life. They get sick, literally throw up 
of the thought of walking into a church building. Now, that's serious trauma. Okay, you don't just quote a Bible verse and say, quit puking. That takes, that takes time to, to heal from. Those are, those are very real, painful, traumatic, traumatic episodes that God needs to bring healing. That takes time. So the best thing we need to do is just, just listen, be a, be a friend, be, be patient, right? Now, many people, you know what, they, they, they read the Bible and, just, and they pray and it just falls flat. It does nothing for them. They believe that God would bring healing. They believe that, that God would fix that relationship. They believe that God would give them that job, and it didn't happen. So you know what that means? That means God failed me. So the assumption is, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We obviously cannot look into the heart of every person and make the claim that, well, because it didn't work for them, they just weren't sincere. They just didn't try hard enough as if they were lacking in some kind of effort. But what we can speak to is, I think, a very common perspective of how Christianity is viewed, particularly in our culture, just by the very fact that we say it's supposed to work for us, I think is problematic. As if our faith is supposed to improve my lot in life. I think that's misguided. It's kind of like saying, okay, the reason I'm going to get married is because I want it to cure my loneliness and, and I, I want to be secure and I want to be happy. So therefore, I'm going to get married. All it takes is five minutes of marriage to know that that's not going to work. Okay? But listen, is the problem marriage or is the problem my perspective? The problem is not marriage. We could help ourselves by adjusting our expectations you know, that, that match reality. So if I go through the Christian life realizing that God is calling me into a, a life of discipleship, and, and that may and probably will include suffering as well as joys, then my expectations are vastly different from the person who's trained that, you know, God is like a genie in the bottle just to give me my best life now, or whatever the phrases are that, you know, communicate this idea that God's going to improve our lot. Now, let me just say as an aside, we can certainly, I hope we can all agree, I'm not saying this out of any kind of competitive spirit, but it's just reality. There are some churches that suck. And there, there are Christian leaders who are creepy and shouldn't be leading. Okay? That, that's just the truth. And so we, we just can't think because it says church that, that that's good. There are people that will mislead. There are churches that, that aren't healthy. If I get a lemon for a car, I'm not going to give up altogether on automobiles and start walking for the rest of my life. I'm going to hopefully take it back to the dealership, all right? Now, it certainly exacerbates the problem if the dealer's not willing to admit the problem, right? 
or acknowledge the problem. And I would say the same is true for the church. I don't give up on the church because I had a bad experience, although I understand why people would. But I do think we have to be honest that there's spiritual abuse that goes on. And yes, within Christianity. And yes, within evangelicalism. Whatever name you want to give it, in every every strain, there are bad people. And it's not always healthy. And frankly, there's probably even been seasons where this church was not healthy. And we had a, maybe a wrong perspective. I mean, just like there's unhealthiness in a marriage. But you address it, and you get back to good health. So let's just be honest about the spiritual abuse that takes place and be, be quick to admit our faults. I mean, if anything, I, I hope that people know that, that we'll be honest about Christianity and our, our experiences with God and All of those aren't success stories. Next, is that many Christians are vulnerable because they are unaware of the spiritual forces working against them. We could maybe say it this way. Satan has used the first three vulnerabilities in the church to get people trapped. I think that, that would be safe to say. Why? For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then we read another passage. The Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to a church. And, you know, usually when you know you're not going to see somebody again, you're going to say some things that are really important. This is what he said in in Acts 20. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, sweat, uh, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wow. I mean, people will, will disguise themselves to gain the trust of the church. And then they lead people astray. So we can't be naive. It was happening then, and it's happening now. Could be pastors. Could be leaders in the church. Could be our friends. Could be even relatives. Going to be charming. They'll be well-liked. But they'll draw away people from the Word of God. And Christians get sucked right into it. Acts 8 provides a story, I think that's very instructive, that certainly raises a red flag, a cause for us to be discerning that not everything that is spiritual and popular is healthy. Verse 9, Acts 8. And there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Notice how he was marketing himself. He went around saying that he was great, and people believed him. 
Now, it's not that marketing in and of itself is bad, although i got to say I'm a little uncomfortable with how churches often do it. Now, maybe it's my problem, but I'd rather let God lift us up. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Proverbs says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, I can't look into the heart of every person, but I'd rather let others toot our horn than have us do it ourselves. It's okay to tell somebody, you know, I enjoy my church, blah, blah, blah. And maybe I have a fatal flaw here as far as compromising growth of CCC. To me, it's kind of like when you work out. I don't know about you, but guys preening in front of the mirror. I mean, come on, dude. Really? I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't want to do it. I don't like when others do it. That's just me. You know, I'm not saying every Facebook post of that is bad. I'm just saying that's just me. I, I have a problem with that. I just, can't, I just don't get people wanting to do that, but, you know. And Simon was a master of publicity. He was a master, to, and it left people amazed. The scary thing is, here's the scary thing, it works. This self-promotion, it works. I mean, it's just embedded in our culture. People fall for it. And in the case of Simon, it helped him to continue to deceive people with his magic. Now remember, the Samaritans were kind of a, a mishmash of, of religious thought, an eclectic form of superstition, magic, and throw in a little Judaism. Like when we went to South America in Bolivia years ago, there was this kind of voodooism, animism, mixed with Catholicism. It was just a weird mix. Remember the Magi who came to visit Christ when he was born? That's the same group. First century wizards, stargazers, sorcerers, magicians. And listen, people are easily swayed by the drama, particularly if it's up in front of people and on a stage. And when people desire to see all those signs and the drama and all that, they are easily bewitched by pretenders they're, because they're, they're ready to gratify them to give them what they want. In his book, Psychic Blues, Confessions of a Conflicted Medium, I don't recommend you read it, but let me quote it. Psychic Mark Edward, he offers really some, some fascinating insight into the hunger in our culture for something transcendent or something beyond this material world. Edward admits that for decades he peddled, and I'm quoting here, junkyard superstition. And again, I quote, to the gullible, the lonely, the hopeful, and lastly, to the dim. <laughs> Whoa. To the dim. Dim-witted. Among his many roles, he was a dial a psychic with the friends, a psychic friends network, a party psychic, a mentalist, a rent a psychic, a palmist, a fortune teller, and a graphologist. And by the way, he admits he has no paranormal powers. And yet millions of people call in to things like this and pay lots of money. Why? Because they're desperate for something beyond the material world, desperate for some answer. And by the way, on the other side of the coin, it's a heady thing to have people come to you for answers. 
to have people come to you for help. It is. It's an occupational hazard for pastors, for lawyers, for doctors. Got to check their ego at the door. Listen, pride costs Nebuchadnezzar his sanity. Pride costs Haman his life. Pride costs Hezekiah his kingdom. Pride costs a whole slew of angels to be cast out of heaven. Proverbs 27.2 says this, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own lips. This is so difficult, and I struggle with it too. In the, in the age of Facebook and Twitter and using all of it as marketing, how does this fall into it? Well, ask God for direction. I'm sure he'll help you because I have no definite answers other than just don't preen in front of the mirror and take a picture of it and put it on Facebook. Other than that, don't, all right? Other than that, all right, no, I'm, I'm just teasing. If you do, I'm sure people can do that in a good heart. I can't, but maybe you can be one of them. Of course, who would want to see this anyway, but you know, <laughs> that's the other issue, all right? Whoa, look at Tubby, all right, all right. Okay, verse 10. They all paid attention to him and from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now this emphasizes the extent of Simon's influence. People listened and they were amazed. I mean, from the lowest classes to the elite of society, they thought that Simon was a wonder worker, man. And he was able to sustain this influence over a long time. And so I, I think that background is interesting to know then how quickly he kind of turned to follow Philip. Simon boasted and welcomed a claim to himself. Philip certainly didn't do that. I'm going to state it again, just in case you didn't get it the first time. I want us to take note that popularity, having great influence, or increased wealth is not identical to the favor of God. God can use that, but people can have that and be as far from God as anybody else. So we just can't be duped by those things. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And then Jesus said this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Whoa. See, there's a problem when everybody likes you. And frankly, there's a problem if as a Christian you have no enemies, if everybody likes everything you say. Because you've got to come in conflict with a culture, and that's going to create tension, problems. So if, if there's no tension at all and no problems, no suffering at all, that's an issue, right? And listen, it, like I said, it's an occupational hazard in ministry. Because, you know, we think we're successful if a lot of people show up. But 
there's a lot of other markers, and I think a lot healthier markers for effectiveness than that. I like what Churchill said, and I've said it before. You know, people ask him, you know, um, aren't you pleased that all these people come to see you speak? And he said, no, because twice as many would come to see me hang. Churchill understood that popularity is not anything that you grab a hold of or go after. You hold it with, a, with an open hand. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. See, Philip preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. I love that he added that because you're talking about God's rule in a kingdom, Jesus being king, and, and were his subjects in the kingdom. And people were baptized, it says, and, and they were wanting to make a public confession of their faith. So Philip was calling people to not only come out publicly, but be willing to follow Christ in his kingdom. And that may mean some really good things, but that may also mean suffering. And certainly it's in the backdrop of the chapter earlier, Stephen being killed for the faith. And so I'm sure you had many Christians wondering, hey, we heard about what happened to Stephen. Could that happen to us? Well, there are no guarantees. It may, but hey, Jesus is a wonderful thing. There may be suffering, though. He was calling people to discipleship. Conversely, Simon was calling people to allegiance to himself. He was placating their fleshly desires. I mean, Philip knew that calling people to Christ without the rigors of discipleship is like, you know, calling a soldier to go into battle and not putting him into boot camp and not giving him any training first. You just, you just can't do that and be, not be an honest portrayal of what it would be like to be a soldier. And so when we say, hey, we, we call you to Christ, we want you to, to believe the gospel, but listen, following Christ isn't easy because listen, you may get rid of one set of problems and now you're going to have another set of challenges as a Christian. Because now you're going to come up against a world of darkness, and that's going to be problematic as well. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's certainly not easy street. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles believed, uh, excuse me, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, many read this verse and they claim, well, obviously Simon came to Christ and he was a follower of Christ. But it never really, it says that he believed Jesus or, the, or the, what Philip was saying. We have to be cautious about this. And I, I, I can't look inside Simon's heart. I can't say with any certainty. And fa frankly, commentators, you know, go back and forth about whether he was or wasn't generally converted. We really don't know. So let me just say, get that out. We really don't know. I mean, I have a... I have a perspective of it, but I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to die on that. And frankly, I don't think that's the point, but nevertheless. James 2 says that even demons believe. Even the demons know that Jesus is God, right? But they're not going to fall under his rule because there's pride and arrogance. And so people may acknowledge who Jesus is, but they choose not to follow him. They are not going to be a disciple. They just have a, 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 you know, a mental assent. But their will is not going to break in favor of the king. And that's a whole different thing. 
Belief alone does not make one a Christian, particularly when that belief is not based on the gospel. And in Simon's case, it appears that he just based his trying to get an inside look at miracles with Philip. You know, I think he wanted to add that to his arsenal. I mean, there's nothing said about Simon repenting of his sins. There's nothing said about him continuing to actually follow Christ. But what we do know is this, is the gospel can change anyone if we'll humble ourselves before God. That we know is true. And Simon, listen, he certainly looked good on the surface. He said the right words, right? And he got baptized. But a person can do those things and not be a genuine believer. And many people do that. And they tube out later. I mean, we're called to enter into a life with Christ in the midst of a culture that works against us, of the devil that is real and seeks to devour us, and our own flesh that seeks to independently live apart from God. Now, Jesus gave a parable of how the word of God can fall on different kind of soils, the soils representing different kind of people or, or the hearts of, of people. And for instance, some, sometimes the word of God falls on rocky soil. And that's where the first time that trials come, they say, no, thanks, but no thanks, that's not for me, and they're gone. Uh, some soil is covered with thorns. People hear the word, but what they do is they worry about money, they worry about their job, the cares of the world, the pleasures, and that chokes it out. And then some falls on good soil. Uh, the good soil is where you hear the word in an honest and good heart. And so it bears fruit with great patience. I saw that with my wife. For those of you who don't know the story, I, I met Janet the night she came to Christ. Grew up in a religious home that was not, you know, did not embrace the gospel. And when she came to Christ, she had a price to pay because her family was not pleased, and her mother in particular. But you know what happened? A few years later, her mother came to Christ. I mean, it was just it was a wonderful thing. But did she pay a price? Yes. She knew what she was going to do. And she didn't look back. Even the priest of the church she used to go to said, hey, could you come and teach here? Because <laughs> he knew that she had something that he didn't. <laughs> and he wanted her to teach. It's a kind of amazing story. But good heart bears fruit with patience. There's a pastor, Jim Dennison, who when he was in college, he's a pastor in Texas, he was a missionary in Malaysia and attended a small church. And he had a young woman who came to Christ and later was being baptized. And at the, at the baptismal service, she had luggage that she leaned up against the wall. And Dennison went to the pastor and he said, why did she bring luggage to this? And the pastor told him, because her father told her that if you get baptized, you're done in our family, and don't ever come back. So she made her choice. She counted the cost. She wanted to bear fruit with patience. That is the kind of conversion 
where we understand the cost and we're willing to pay that. We're willing to maybe lose some friends, maybe even some family, because my commitment to Christ, I'm not going to compromise. That's inspiring. And I think God is challenging all of us to consider not a surface kind of Christianity where, you know, I can play the game, I can slide along, I can say the words, I can raise my hands, I know the lingo, but in your heart you know you're playing around, you know it's a charade. And maybe God is saying, hey, it's good that you recognize it's a charade, by the way. I think that's good. But how about living authentically before Christ now? How about truly submitting yourself to him as a disciple of Christ? And not just being a cultural Christian, but an authentic one. That's what God is calling us to. Let's pray.